0: Milsap, Chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Milsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Milsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production.
1: I'm Ryan Millsap, host of the Blackhaw Studios podcast from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an entrepreneur, mostly by necessity because I have massive authority issues, and also by constitution as the entrepreneurial life is filled with things I love, freedom, adventure, creativity and imagination. When I began this leg of my journey into the entertainment industry, you may find it interesting to know that my background before this was all commercial real estate. And that i built blackhall studios as a specialty real estate project for production giants like disney sony warner brothers and universal to have a place to apply their skilled craft of production i'm from los angeles but i moved to atlanta six years ago i've done business all over the world and i know few places with the dynamism of atlanta it's a world-class city with a huge economic future as a center of commerce for a global economy on this podcast we get local and global and talk to people who are inspirational, sensational, sometimes motivational, but at all times somehow tied to the ecosystem that is the culture and business of entertainment as it relates to Black Hall Studios. Today on the podcast, I have a real maverick from the international sports management arena, Dr. Harvey Schiller. From his time as a fighter pilot to chairman of the Southeastern Conference to executive director of the United States Olympic Committee where Schiller found himself highlighted in ESPN's amazing documentary, The Last Dance, by the Olympic dream team leader, Michael Jordan, Schiller came to Atlanta for the 1996 games only to meet his next boss, Ted Turner, who made him president of Turner Sports. With an invitation from his good friend, baseball legend, George Steinbrenner, Schiller then became CEO of Yankee Nets, the first company of its kind managing marketing broadcasting and new revenue streams for the New York Yankees, the New Jersey Devils, and the New York Nets, now known as the Brooklyn Nets under ownership of music mogul Jay-Z. I've had a great conversation with Dr. Harvey Schiller. He shared some brilliant stories, and I hope I can host him again. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall podcast. Today, we are really fortunate to have an illustrious guy on our podcast, Dr. Harvey Schiller. Dr. Schiller, how are you today?
0: Good. Good morning.
1: Good morning to you. The Black Hall podcast has a little bit of an, an intro that precedes us that will tell about some of your background. So everybody listening knows quite a bit about the fundamental aspects of your background. One of the things that Struck me as I looked at your life path and all the things that you've accomplished is the amount of intensity it must take to have lived the life that you've
0: lived. Do you relate to that, the idea of intensity? Well, I'm not sure I'd use the word intensity. I think perhaps it's a combination of focus and energy and whatever intellect you were able to bring along. If you look real carefully at most of the positions I've had, they have been things that have needed uh, restructuring or something that needed some kind of fixing and creating something new going forward. So I, I'd i add creativity to that as well.
1: When you look back, what is it in life? I mean, how much of it is nature and how much of it is nurture that creates a person with the amount of focus and energy that you have?
0: We all are uh, examples of our environment. I, I think, my early days of growing up in New York City, really a street kid with a, you know, a lower income family. My dad was a truck driver. My mother worked almost every day in sales, retail sales. So I was left a lot to my own. And most of that time, unfortunately, was spent doing things that you don't want to talk about today. You know, when you're in that kind of environment, join up with the kind of people that you think you want to be part of. So I think those experiences kept telling me, this is not where you want to be. You want to be in a better place. And what are you gonna to do to get over that education? And I always felt that there was something bigger to aspire to, even as I was, you know, doing some things that I wouldn't want my children to do. And all of that led to a decision to go to the Citadel where, uh, you know, military college in Charleston. And if for a kid from New York, it really was a, a very, very different kind of environment as you might expect, but the discipline combined with the education that I had really was a, a light bulb to me. And I think that combination helped me prepare for whatever other challenges there may be in life.
1: What was it, bef- I mean, before you went to the Citadel, I mean, that's obviously a bold move for a, a young man from New York. What gave you the vision to get there? And then why you were there, what kind of visions did you start to have about the future?
0: That's a good question. Going back, being involved in a team sport, playing football in high school, Really changed a lot of my outlook. I, would, I began to see people that were doing things differently, and the camaraderie and the intensity of that, as you were to use intensity, helped to focus. I had a good friend that wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force, and I started listening to him and the kind of things that he was aspiring to as well. And that seemed to me to be something that would take me out of the environment that I was in and change. So the step to the citadel gave me the Air Force Commission, which led to pilot training and a career in the Air Force. And so inside of the Air Force,
1: you know, where along the line did you start to realize one of your special gifts in life was focus and energy? And then how did that translate post the Air Force into all the amazing things that you went on to accomplish?
0: A good friend during my early days in the Air Force said to me, listen, you can do a lot of different things think about this. To fly an airplane, you don't have to know how to change the tires. That's a job that other people can do. Your job is to fly the airplane safely. So I've used that as a mantra and going forward, there are a whole range of things that I was able to do, but those were new vistas to take on and new challenges to take on. And I said earlier, it usually was a bunch of fixing and taking a look at things in a different kind of way and bringing team members along with you, because you can't, Obviously, you can't do any of that by yourself. You have to have good people that are focused as well with the intensity that you expect.
1: Now, you had to deal with a lot of strong personalities over the years. I mean, I think about even you know the way that you've been in the news recently with the Michael Jordan documentary. Where did you develop the kind of moxie and the kind of kind of above-the-fray vision that allows you to deal with these strong personalities with strong opinions and yet... Be able to hold your line as to what
0: you know you need to get done. Well, sometimes it's a bit of humor. I remember reading about President Kennedy's father, and he said, "When you go into a meeting, and there are people who are you think are stronger than you in that meeting, just think of that sitting there in long red, you know, red pajamas, and it takes away that aura of who they are." I think the New York part was probably gave me a little bit of that moxie, uh, a little bit of humor, and a bit of understanding and friendship. So whether it's George Steinbrenner or Ted Turner or a senior general in the Air Force or Michael Jordan, and by the way, him calling me a dick, a former student of mine said, well, that's just director in charge. That's all that means.
1: (laughs) I love that. And you know what? If Michael even puts his gaze upon you, you're doing something right.
0: You know, I know him since that time. Uh, his agent's a good friend of mine, David Falk. And we've talked about doing some businesses together. So uh, way back. And look, it's the environment he's in. The interesting part to me about all of that is that is of the 12 or so people on the Dream Team, they, some of them were sponsored by Reebok. So he's the only one who covered Reebok with the flag. None of the others did. And from that time, he became, you know, he lost his friendship with Charles Barkley and others. So, look, as I said, I am sure every one of those team members has kept that Reebok award medal uniform somewhere in their home because it means something special.
1: You know, I, I think of a conflict like that, and and it makes me reflect on some of the things I've learned about People and, and their time horizons and their focus. And when I, you know, I watched that documentary, and one of the things I was struck by is that Michael Jordan, despite the fact that in the minds of Americans and the soul of America, he's eternal, right at this point, he's such an icon for America. He personally felt like he lived in a very short time horizon in, in the past and the future and was so just incredibly present. And yet, You know, when it comes to long distance vision, that definitely didn't feel like his strength, but that's not what you need as an athlete. Where have you experienced seeing how different types of personalities and different the time horizons different personalities have? How do those fit together in your mind to create
0: the best kind of team? Well, it's a good point about Jordan and being in the moment. I happen to have he brought me along once to speak at one of his camps for older people in Las Vegas. I'm not sure there was more focus on gambling than there was on basketball, but anyway, there the camp. One of the campers asked a question. One of the famous shots he took, which seemed to be completely mindless as he went up to put the ball in the in the basket. What were you thinking about when you made that particular leap to the basket? And he said, "I wasn't thinking about a darn thing, because uh, my body was responding to all the training and everything else that I've done, and I called upon it." to perform at that particular point. But he said, that was the moment that I prepared for. And I think that preparing for whatever that challenge is, as we live in a disruptive society where things are changing so quickly. I mean, we're facing a virus now, but we face a lot of other things technologically and otherwise. How How can we take advantage of it instead of thinking about it as the enemy? Focus is a big part of that. And Jordan is a good example, Tom Brady is a good, you know, we tend to use athletes, but they're business people and others, and certainly when you're in combat, you're taking all the things that are around you for that moment to perform, especially when you're in an emergency situation, and, and how you deal with your friends and your family and your business associates and the work that you do and putting something special together, creativity. I think all of that comes from preparation. In dealing with the some of the people that we just mentioned, Everyone carries some of their own demons with them, and I've learned don't attack them. That's not the place to be. George may have had a lot of things about him that you didn't like, but try to think the things you liked about him. And what I liked most about him was his ability to be a friend. And I used that friendship, and he used it with me in terms of building a really strong relationship with Ted Turner. It was his ability to think out of the box and be creative and start a global network and new channels and World Championship Wrestling and buy a team and win the World Series and marry a movie star and whatever else it was, it was his ability to take on new vistas. And looking at that with him, it was something that I wanted to be part of because he was able to say to the world, I'm going to take the Atlanta Braves and you know what, I'm gonna make sure that every American has a chance to watch them. Different way to look at it. When 9-11 hit, he was really out of the leadership of Turner and CNN World, but his apartment was in CNN Center on the top floor. So when the airplanes hit the Pentagon and the World Trade Towers, he ran down to the CNN Broadcast Center in the building, and he said, To the various directors there why aren't we showing this on every single channel that we have this is a moment of our world that has never happened before and hopefully will never happen again put it on everything not just cnn but tnt and tbs and cnn Español and cnn international and every every outlet we have now why didn't the other people in that room think that why did it take ted turner to walk in there because he had this global vision of what really makes a difference in the world.
1: I love this this idea that you're exploring about how we focus on the strengths of the people in front of us, rather than the weaknesses, in order to get the best, not only from them, but maybe out of ourselves. Where, you know, you, you were talking about George, I, I assume we're talking about George Steinbrenner there. And then, yeah. you know, obviously Ted Turner. I mean, these are great American stories, uh, these men. When you look back, I mean, you're obviously a scholar. You have two PhDs. When you look back and and put your academic mind to work on what it means to be a successful American, what would you say to a young man? Let's say a young man from the Citadel graduates. He comes to you. He's 24 years old, and he says, what does it mean to be a successful American?
0: Well, I step back a bit. I would hope that they have taken some scientific courses when they were students across America. I hope that would be the case because we're living in a really scientific world and understanding how things operate and what the backgrounds may be and be analytical when you see something. If you're if you're a young graduate and you're in a uh, meeting room and somebody puts up a chart or a display with certain points. And you want to be able to analyze that and look at it and say, what is it really telling me? Not just a bunch of points on a chart. So I think having somewhat of an analytical mind and looking at things that way helps you along the way. I'd also would tell, which I do tell every young person that I meet, is volunteer. Join some things where you can give your time, which are not your vocation, but are your avocation. Things you believe in. Maybe it's music or drama or uh, working at a hospital or coaching a kid's team. Because in that environment, you're going to use different skills that you've never used before. They're going to be different for what you do for your work every day. Whether you're in the military or not, business, selling real estate, whatever it may be, volunteer. Because people will see you that are part of that volunteer team in, a, in a, some of the skill sets that you have that you haven't even thought about yourself. You know, I got involved in the heading up the U.S. Olympic Committee because I volunteered to run a boxing event in Los Angeles. And people around that said, why don't you, have you ever thought about running the entire Olympic Committee? So, and when I got involved as commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, how did that happen? Well, I was a volunteer in the NCAA. And that led to uh, then the president of Auburn University saying to me, have you ever thought about being the, the commissioner of the southeastern conference i said no i'm an active duty air force officer i'm a professor at the air force academy he said why don't you come interview and if i can i tell a quick story about that yeah i'd love it so i walked into the central bank building and really they didn't want a person out of the military to be the commissioner of the southeastern conference they had focused on someone who was an athletic director at the time and when i walked into the room there were then the 10 members alabama auburn florida georgia said to vanderbilt and they couldn't get me out of their room fast enough. They they didn't want someone with a military mind. And the president of the conference was Gerald Turner, who is now the president of SMU. And the last question he asked was, uh, I don't think we want somebody as a military, with a military mind how it would work with our fans in the Southeastern part of the United States. And I said, well, let me say something. And I stood up and I said, well, this conference has been known for cheating its entire existence. It might not be so bad. If you took an individual from an institution, we well, didn't lie, cheat, or steal, but you certainly wouldn't tolerate it. And I walked out. <laughs> and, and I called my call my wife and said, "Don't worry, we're not moving from Colorado to Birmingham. This just happened." When I landed back in Colorado Springs, they came and wanted to offer me the job. So I think you have to be who you are, and hopefully you're in environments where other people could see. I mean, think about all the people that will listen to this and yourself. You know, some of the things you're doing were because of what people have seen in you. So you've got to expose yourself to that. So, again, I would recommend that people volunteer. And continue your education, no matter what it is. Pick up certain things. Learn things, you know. Take a course in something different. Learn something that you haven't learned before. Hmm.
1: When you, you said something that was interesting to me, which is military mind. For somebody that doesn't know or doesn't have the context for military life or training, what do you mean by the military mind?
0: Well, I I think it's a misnomer. It's a carryover from movies and television where you see a senior officer or drill sergeant, Marine Corps drill instructor, chewing somebody out and telling them, you know, I'm ordering you to do this. But that doesn't work. You know, Great leaders inspire and lead. They don't direct. Eisenhower said, if you lead a man by fear and you take away the fear, the man is gone. So, you, so the, it's, it's just a misconception of what's going on. You, you certainly train to fly a fighter in combat. And you've been prepared for that, just like your airline pilot has for landing in bad weather and understands the stress that that can and you can overcome it there's no such thing really as a military mind it's it's complete misunderstanding of what people think about the military i think we're learning more about that as we see an all volunteer army air force navy marine corps you know my my father was a
1: an ex uh special forces recon marine he was in vietnam 68 69 and that had a huge impact on his life i mean in, in psychologically um, spiritually emotionally when you look back at that time because you were in you know serious combat time in vietnam what are what are the ways that you think of how that impacted you the rest of your life
0: well like your dad i was there i was there a little earlier i was there for a year from 66 to 67 in the early post gulf of tonkin episode i i think the lasting i call it a gift was your ability to demonstrate who you were under fire i'm sure your dad had that same experience which is a statement of courage and it's very very unusual in a human in today's world and in a human being's life that they're exposed to that particular test i mean only a small number of people who are in combat a small number of people who in law enforcement what's going on now in hospital rooms and so forth, where people are able to demonstrate their courage under really, really trying situations and come out of it successfully. I see that as a gift, personally. And maybe that's what led to telling Michael Jordan and the Dream Team, you don't wear the Reebok uniform, you're not getting a gold medal. (laughs)
1: That's right.
0: That's
1: That's right, and my dad talks about really two major lessons. I mean, obviously, the lessons are probably countless. But two major things that he experienced that stayed with him psychologically were, you know, number one, he takes no moment for granted. Right? Obviously, when you see that kind of death and destruction, um, you know that everything in life can change in an instant. And you, you know, you stop taking things for granted. You stop believing that tomorrow is exactly what today will be and you, you appreciate the beauty of today. Um, and I think you also learn how to fight through the struggle of today, knowing that tomorrow can be completely different. So I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that he, you know, shared with me. The other thing is exactly what you were talking about, you know, maybe said slightly differently, but the same spirit, which is, he said, you know, when you go through things like that, you learn your own capabilities and you learn that you have the metal, you have the wherewithal, you have the strength, you have the courage, you have all of these things within you that you didn't realize until you were tested. And then when you come out the other side, you know you have them. And so he said, you know, for him, he walks out into the world every day knowing that he is capable of handling basically anything. And it sounds to me like that's kind of a spirit that you walked away with too, Only the spirit of I can handle anything allows you to walk into a situation where a bunch of superstars are, you know, on some level being prima donnas and telling them that's just not the way it's going to work. Do you relate to that?
0: Yeah, I I relate to it in a different kind of way. I mean, I don't think a pilot, in spite of all the stress, the thought of being shot down is the same as your dad experienced on the ground. So he, I think there were certain things that you just mentioned, which were a little different than... I did. I had, you know, the, certainly the statement of courage, but taking for granted the situation, you know, I didn't live in the same kind of situation that he and his fellow Marines and others lived in. But I did have a an experience in the, when I first got involved in the Olympic movement, I got involved in the sport of boxing. And in the early 1980s, uh, a, a USA boxing team was on its way to uh, had a set of bouts in Poland and the airplane crashed on landing in Warsaw and the entire team was killed. And I was contacted uh, to go over with some other people to try to identify the bodies from this horrific airplane crash. There were 20 something people involved. And I went to Warsaw and with a couple of other people and There were also some people from the armed forces institute of pathology to help in identification and when i got there i went to this now this is 40 years ago this morgue in warsaw poland which had different issues they were facing in terms of energy so imagine a morgue where there's no refrigeration think about that and you're walking in and on these tables are people that you've known from your other experiences and from the age of 18 to some of them in their 40s and 50s, and really in pieces. And when I looked at them and helped with the identification through a variety of ways, that's when I said life is for living and don't take anything for granted. So I had a a different experience than your dad, but in a similar way, it was that carnage that he saw on the ground in Vietnam that I saw in an airplane, airplane crash when I was in my late 30s that gave me that lesson.
1: Well those kind of graphic lessons are sobering and centering I suppose
0: I don't want to be over descriptive but you're right How does that impact you
1: spiritually Do you have a, a spiritual sense of life
0: I do I, I'm not a religious person but I I you know I try to think about as I said earlier the goodness of people and I'm not. I'm not someone. I, I think religion does good things and religion does bad things. But in general, if you if, if follow the way it's supposed to lead, it, we wouldn't have conflict in the Middle East and we wouldn't have conflict in other places. But I think that having a social order is important for societies to succeed. We wouldn't want people running around and killing each other, or raping, and doing all the bad things. So. Um, I'm not sure I'd use the word spirit. I'm not sure what that all means, but I think I'd use the word goodness. And that's, you know, try try to feel that way about everything.
1: Yeah, goodness makes me think of, you know, virtue. What are the virtues that you think of if you think of manliness? I mean, as apart from humanness, like specifically manliness what are the virtues that a man should want to acquire
0: oh gee (laughs) i i i think it probably depends upon the environment and the person i mean if you're if you're in an environment where all you have to do is hunt for food your virtues are somewhat different than someone who's living in new york city and selling real estate so i i think being i think Two of the things that are really important in my life are honesty and integrity. And when I when I left the Air Force, people would, in business were saying, to me, you know, you're living in a different world because the people you've been around have had a rite of passage and they've instilled in them as this bit of honesty and integrity. And you're not going to find that in every business deal that you go into. Yet I tried to do that. I tried to accept that if someone shook my hand and someone gave me their word, I didn't have to write it down on a piece of paper. You know, we know we live in a litigious society and that piece of paper becomes more and more important, but I've always felt that, okay, I'll live on your word and I expect you to be honest. And you know, there's a saying, be honest because that's what you'll remember what you said. And there's another one that says, uh, be honest, but don't blabber the truth. So I, I try to think around those things, you know, be direct, and get to the particular. I've been in a lot of business situations where they've been back and forth and back and forth over days and hours. And sometimes I've been brought into the discussion. I, I and I might use some profanity and and say to the individual on the other side, Are you going to do this or not? Just let me know. And <laughs> and, and, and it seems to work every time, you know. Uh, so I've done this on occasion, which might seem a little strange, but I've been in rooms where it's going back and back and forth. And and I'll, I'll say, excuse me for a second. Let's both get up. And the person on the other side of the table would get up and I'd say, come on and sit over here. And I'd go over to their side and say, I'm going to try to argue your argument from your side. You try to see it from my side by sitting in my chair.
1: <laughs> I love this.
0: You know that works every time.
1: Yeah. Well, you're What's an incredibly every- practical philosopher. I mean, I I love, I love I love the notion that the idea is only as good as the practical use. Is that what I'm hearing some from you? Like it feels like a very practical approach to the philosophical.
0: Yeah, my mother used to say to me when growing up, it said, always be prideful of what you do. And and then she'd say, You're standing there naked. Are you still proud? And I said, no, 11, 12, 13 years. Of, what the hell did I understand about that? But I do now. And, and I think being proud of what you do, and you know, we all. I used to tell my kids that when you start, no matter what you want to do in life, you're starting with an empty bag that you're always carrying with you. You decide what you want to put in that bag. You know, if you if you want to be a secret service agent, you better make sure everything in that bag is clean, without crime or. You, have, you haven't done anything that's going to work against you taking that kind of position and job. So, you know, I have things in that bag that I'm not proud of. And I think about them a lot. And if I would have faced those situations, the personal relationships, you know, with your, your wife and your children and your friends, I would have done things a little bit differently with maturity and age. But at the time, it was who I was. And it went in the bag. So I've been able to carry that with me and tolerate it and think about it and change with it. There was a special on 60 Minutes some years ago, you might have seen it, where they talked to a group of people who remember everything. You pick a date, September 26, 1992, they'll tell you what they wore, who they were, what they said, what the weather was. It didn't matter. Every single thing in their life, they remembered And the interviewer said, that must be a terrible thing to have to remember everything. And you know what the respondent said? I just keep doing good things, so I'll remember good things.
1: I mean, that's amazing. That's an amazingly profound wonderfulness of non-compartmentalization. So often it feels like people act like today doesn't matter tomorrow. It just gets boxed and put on a shelf and tomorrow's a totally new day. On some level, there's amazing health in that, like you watch, like we were talking about with athletes, right? There's something amazingly healthy about wiping the slate clean and just moving on to the next moment. But then there's the profound human beauty of continuity and the things that we are proud of, you know, the stories that we are most proud of. When you think back, what are what are a few things that you consider to be the things you're most proud of?
0: It starts with family. Uh, You know, proud of relationship I've had with my wife for over fifty years, with its plus and minuses and all that time. You know, I figured about twenty-five of the years, or probably the years, we didn't talk to each other, but we lasted fifty years, so um, or more. Uh, The development of our children, who are good citizens and healthy and smart and have given back to society and still do and well educated and other family members and I think that starts. I'm proud of my service to my country, defending freedom. I always think of myself doing that and everything that I do, you know, even as a retired officer but you know, I'd go back in a second, even at my age, to serve wherever I was asked to serve. I feel guilty about not being in Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, helping people in floods or fires or what guardsmen do and others. I would I'd do that in a second. You know, I'd jump in front of a car to save a kid for their life. Uh, I would try to make smart decisions about things and contribute. But I think those two things: family, defending America. Um, maybe contributing some things in science when I was doing research is probably some leave behinds uh, I would add the nurturing and mentoring of people in my life I'm very very proud of people that have been successful and moved on you know I was at a the Football Hall of Fame dinner in New York uh, last year and the keynote speaker was Charles Davis know who's Charles Davis well Charles is now the he just he's moving from Fox football to CBS football. He's one of their color commentators, and he's had a great career. But had it? What happened? So when I was commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, oh by the way, put it in perspective. I'm sitting at a table in an audience where somebody who's the keynote speaker and the MC was somebody who worked for me when they were 20-something years old. So, I'm looking up on the stage, and I'm thinking, okay, how did I meet Charles Davis? I gave a speech at the University of Tennessee, and Doug Dickey, the athletic director, said, Charles, why don't you take the commissioner back to the airport? So, we spent 30, 45 minutes in the car where he drove me to the airport, and I fell in love with the guy. And I said, hey, look, come work for me in the Southeastern Conference. I said, are you sure he had been working? He was a graduate assistant in football, working on his master's degree. So I got back to the office. I said, "Gee whiz!" I offered this guy a job. I don't have any money for him. So I went to Ted Turner and I said, "We do not have enough African Americans in athletic jobs around the ten schools that we have. I need, I need hundred and fifty thousand dollars." He said, "What do you need the money for?" I said, "I need ten thousand dollars to give to each of our ten schools." to hire a minority person as an intern. And I need $50,000 to hire this guy, Charles Davis, to be an assistant in my office. And he said, OK, so we brought Charles in. And he and I traveled around the southeast together, or he traveled with our director of enforcement and compliance and others, and did an unbelievable job. And eventually, he he wanted to get back to coaching. And he went, I think it was, Pacific or Kansas State and they were playing one of our southeastern conference schools and he was they they weren't doing very well he was a defensive coordinator and he said commissioner um, I need to leave I said well I'm leaving for the Olympic committee why don't you come with me and he then left coaching and he became the director of our training center in Colorado Springs then he moved on and eventually he is who he is today and (laughs) and when we took him around I'll give you a small example we had an athletic, is this taking too much time? Tell me. No, God, this is fantastic. So so Charles, again, African-American. We had a meeting of athletic directors in Jackson, Mississippi, and it was at the Jackson Country Club. And he was sitting at the dais with me. Uh, and he gives me a little shoulder shrug, and he's sitting next to me, he says, Commissioner, look at my steak. He had a steak that was almost as big as the table. It was bigger than the plate. And there were two African American waiters, one on either side of them, giving them everything he wanted. Because Charles was the first African American to eat inside dinner at the Jackson Country Club. and Right then, ate, at that meal, that was the first meal? That was the first time that a black had eaten there at that, at that particular time. Now, this was 1988, so... 32 years ago. Yeah, a lot of changes since. He traveled around the country and did different things to help bring other minorities in. And uh, some of those initial interns became athletic directors at uh, institutions around America, including Georgia and other places. So I would add the last part is mentoring and creating opportunities for young people. There's a young lady who worked for me as an intern at the Olympic Committee, Jenny Storms. You know where she is now? She does all the marketing for NBC television. And Incredible. I have to, I have to go to her to get something done. She doesn't have to come to me anymore. So <laughs> that's so when you're really doing people. your job right. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, when you look up and there, there's that guy that was an intern who's the dinner host for a thousand people.
1: Right, giving the keynote that you remember hearing his voice for the first time in a car on the way to the airport, and yeah. thinking this is a, this is a good this is a good quality human being. I want to. I want to not only help him, but this is the kind of person I'd want on my team.
0: Absolutely. And there were a bunch of people like that that have done significant things in life that I was lucky enough to meet early on in my career.
1: So, you know, I have three daughters, ages 15, 13, and 10. Give me some advice, parenting advice. You've been through it. What should I know?
0: Well, for your daughters at that age, I'd wait until they were 16 or 17 to talk to them. (laughs) so good because they're at the age they're at you're not going to influence anything you know Uh, so seriously i mean all you can do is understand the challenges that they're facing among school and friends and girls especially are living a world of rejection by other girls or by boys or whoever they believe in and you got to help them through that it's not about them it's about the other people and you can't You know your children can't control the actions of other people they have to be who they are and they got to keep working at it maybe they say to someone who is mean i know you didn't mean to say that there was there was a great commercial a year or two ago about cell phones and there's a young daughter and a mother who are screaming at each other yelling but they're not saying bad things they're saying the daughter saying something like you're telling me I can have a phone and the mother screams out, Yes, you can have this phone. You're telling me this phone can do this and they're going back and forth and they're thinking, Yeah, good. You know, they're still raising their voices, but they're doing good things for each other.
1: Right. So stay patient. That's what I I hear you advising me with the with the with, with my daughters to give them some time because these are going to be the years that require more silence than participation from me.
0: It may take a long time. My daughter attended uh, Smith College in Massachusetts. And she did her junior year in Switzerland and traveled around a lot. And she visited some of the beachheads at Omaha and others where we invaded, uh, you know, where our forces invaded France and so forth. And she sat down on that beachhead in France and wrote me a letter where she understood everything that I've been talking about in terms of defending America and Putting your life to save others, you know that's a once in a lifetime thing you have with your child. But some of that was when we were at a training base in Virginia, and each day at when they lowered the flag, we'd go outside and listen to the bugler playing while they lowered the flag. I never said anything that, but somehow that had a inspirational part of who she is today.
1: Hmm. Well, Doctor Schiller, we're running out of time, but you know the last thing I'd I'd love to hear from you is As you imagine kind of the trajectory that America is on today, what are the things you hope for for the next generation of Americans?
0: Well, always, you know, you want your children and their children to have opportunity, and you hope that the environment is safe, sustainability, and those kind of things can go forward that the same resources that we've had in growing up that they will have available to them. You hope that science will solve some of the challenges, that, not what we have now, but the next one as well, whether it's the COVID-19 virus or other things. And people have to put their faith and their energy in that thing. And everybody has to be optimistic. As I said earlier, they have to be honest about things. You, know, you hope the national leadership and local leadership is, has the ability to instill those values in people. I'm not sure they do right now, but you know, hopefully we'll work through it. I, th- I think my grandchildren are smart enough to understand when a public figure speaks what they're really saying and what they're not saying. Children today, our your kids, are being exposed to things that none of us have seen in at least in my lifetime in terms of leadership. And maybe it's the way we remember it. You know, I was born when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president of the United States. And I was maybe five when he died. And I remember my mother was an immigrant. And she we were in a small apartment kitchen. And she was ironing. And on the radio, it came that Franklin Roosevelt died at Warm Springs, Georgia, today. And my mother put the iron down. I'll never forget this. Lifted up her apron and started crying. And that's the way we the reverence we've had for national leaders, people who were an immigrant society, who had the opportunity and the safety of America. And I hope we all recognize that going forward.
1: Beautiful. Doctor, where can people find you if they want to hunt you down for one reason or another? Do you have social media, websites, anything like that?
0: Yeah, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I don't do much on Twitter. You know, that I'm my... Everybody knows my email, H at AOL.com. Old and, school. Yeah, old school. I have other, probably have 10 others, but that's the most easiest one to remember. Probably that's the best way.
1: Dr. Schiller, it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate you taking the
0: time to join us here on the Black Hole Podcast. Thank you for the opportunity, and I uh, appreciate all you're doing and doing these podcasts. Thank you.
1: My pleasure, and have a great day. You too. I'll leave you guys with thoughts that I write on Instagram. Sometimes people are far more broken than you ever realized. Sometimes only good information flow reveals the truth. Truth can be very sad, but the truth will set us free.
0: Thanks for listening to the Black Hole Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, and follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at ryan.milsap.